Ethnic, social, cultural, and nationalistic divides are nothing new. Our Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, there has never been a greater divide that exists among people groups than that of Jew and Gentile. None of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalisms, our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. So tonight we talk about the fact that there is hope for broken relationships, relationships of all natures, of all kinds, as we work our way through Ephesians. It's going to be talking about husbands and wives. It's going to be talking about parents and children. It's going to be talking about masters and slaves. Uh, every imaginable relationship is affected by sin and is redeemable by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. So there is hope for broken relationships. And what is that hope? Well, to understand the hope, we must understand the brokenness of relationships. The fall of mankind resulted in division that occurred between mankind and God, as well as mankind with mankind. Not only did the sin of Adam and Eve break their fellowship with God, it also brought strife between themselves. It affected the relationship with their children, Cain and Abel, and ultimately the peoples of the world. So as we think about the doctrine of reconciliation, Reconciliation is a process whereby the broken relationship between mankind and God and mankind with mankind is restored. This is part of the salvific work of Christ referred to in Ephesians 1.10 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So tonight we're going to be talking about this being united in Christ and that as the foundation for these new relationships that we can have to one another. So the theme is union with Christ results in the union of God's people. Union with Christ results in the union of God's people. We begin by looking at the statement of the need for union. First, we were separated from God. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Before we were saved, we were separated from God and others. It is important in life to remember where it is that we have come from. And so it tells us, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, were to reflect on what our life was before we were saved and then contrast that to our life after that we are saved. B. There was a divide that existed between Jew and Gentile before coming to Christ. The Gentiles were identified as the uncircumcised by the Jewish people who were physically circumcised, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Because Gentiles were physically uncircumcised, uh, they were looked down upon by the Jewish people. The Jews found their identity in being physically circumcised, Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. 
So that phrase, the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, is a referring to a physical circumcision that took place. The Bible speaks about a spiritual circumcision. It talks about a physical circumcision. As we begin this passage, it's talking about physical circumcision and the divide it created among, uh, excuse me, between Jew and Gentile. The ramifications for being uncircumcised were fivefold. First, it's speaking of the time before we came to know Christ. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. The Messiah was to come through the Jewish people of the lineage of David. The Gentiles were not citizens of the nation of Israel, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, it was possible in the Old Testament to become a proselyte and be numbered with the people of Israel and considered to be a citizen. But in order to do that, you had to be circumcised and you had to go through the, the ceremonial rites and rituals that are associated with with Judaism. So those that were uncircumcised were aliens, strangers, as we will see next. The Gentiles were ignorant of God's promises, especially the ultimate promise of the coming of the Messiah. For it says that uh, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And the idea of strangers there seems to be uh, most associated with the idea of being ignorant, uninformed. Uh, they did not know about the promises, uh, well, the covenants, with the ultimate promise, which is the Messiah. So the Gentiles, uh, so see, the Gentiles were ignorant of God's promises, especially the ultimate promise of the coming of the Messiah. D, the Gentiles had no expectation of future deliverance. They had no hope. They had no expectation. They were not looking for something for God to do, a work to be performed. Uh, life was pretty bleak uh, without having any hope in Christ. And most importantly, the Gentiles were alienated from God and without God in the world. Um, so it's a, it's a bleak picture that is presented. See, however, that divide has been bridged by the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, that's the contrast. That's what you were formerly. Remember that. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off and then brought near by the blood of Christ. So now we have the explanation of the union that now exists, which is due to Christ. Union which now exists, which is due to Christ. A, it is Christ who has reconciled people to each other, for he himself is our peace. And the emphasis there is that it is Christ, that it is work that he's done, the emphasis being uh, this uh, reiteration, it is he himself. Uh, he alone uh, has been able to accomplish this reconciliation, and he is the only source of reconciliation. Without Christ, there's no hope of reconciliation. And we're going to see that that includes not only reconciliation with God, but reconciliation of mankind. Um, we are at odds with one another apart from the work of Christ. B, the reconciliation process between Jew and Gentile is described as making peace, for he is our peace. Uh, C, the reconciliation process is described as making two into one, who has made us both one. Thus, both parties are involved. That is Jew and Gentile. It isn't just that the 
the uh, Gentile had to be reconciled, but both parties had to be reconciled to each other. Uh, and D, the union was achieved by breaking down the barriers between us. Verse 14, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now I have here the dividing wall may be an allusion to a wall in the temple that prohibited the Gentiles to enter into the inner portions of the, of the temple. In this passage we have a discussion of circumcision. Uh, there's a lot about the temple and being built together as a, the people of God. And so there are these allusions uh, to both the physical temple and the uh, spiritual temple. And we have at least an example here of the hostility that existed and was demonstrated even in temple worship by uh, looking at this middle wall of partition that existed within the temple. Uh, <clears throat> the court of the Gentiles was one of several courts attached to Herod's temple. The first century historian Josephus mentions four courts. First, the outer court was open to all people, foreigners included. Only menstruating women were refused admission. Secondly, the second court was open to all Jews and when uncontaminated by any defilement, their wives. The third court was limited to male Jews who were clean and purified. The fourth court was limited to priests robed in their priestly vestments. Now, I'm, I'm going to read here a, a lengthy quote from uh, the uh, Lexham Bible Dictionary, and I'm going to uh, try to skip over the uh, references to the sources so that it just flows more freely, but I copied it verbatim and I included the sources from which this material comes. So reading from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, various measures were taken to limit Gentiles' access to the inner areas of the temple. Josephus reports that between the court of the Gentiles and the inner sanctuary, there was a partition made of stone wall all around whose height was three cubits. The inner courts were on an elevated area ascended to by 14 steps from the first court. Warning, excuse me, signs were placed on the stone barrier near the stairs leading up to the inner sanctuary, warning non-Jews not to enter into the area. Two complete tablets written in Greek have been found that read, no alien may enter within the bas uh, balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blamed for the death which will ensue. The inscription does not give any indication as to the legal procedure, whether it refers to death by the hands of heaven, death by lynching, or death by following persecution. From Josephus, we know that Roman law allowed the Jews to execute any Gentile who entered the inner sanctuary. So when we're talking about hostility, you can't get much more hostile than that. And uh, people being put to death, and there was this marked separation. You cannot go farther than this outer court of the Gentiles. And we do have a biblical account of an uproar that was created when the Jews mistakenly thought that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, Acts 21 and following. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! 
This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Gentiles into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, which he had not. But notice that Trophima is from Ephesus. And so he was very much aware of this distinction that existed in worship between Jew and Gentile when it came to the temple. That is uh, representative of a greater divide that existed between those that belong to God and those who do not. E, Christ has done away with the physical circumcision and ceremonial rites that were divisive. Ephesians 2.15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Among other things, God has done away with circumcision. There is in the Bible the right of physical circumcision given to Abraham as the sign of the covenant. Many of the Jewish people came to believe that they were right with God just because they were physically circumcised. However, even in the Old Testament, it was taught that physical circumcision alone did not make a people right with God. That's important to keep in mind. Many of the Jewish leaders uh, failed to recognize the fact that circumcision, physical circumcision alone, did not make a person right with God. Just as there are people who believe today that because they are physically baptized, that their sins are forgiven. Uh, the Catholic Church teaches baptismal regeneration. The Catholic Church teaches that through the uh, waters of baptism, sins are washed away and you have uh, the right uh, of entrance into heaven. So they teach that by being physically baptized, you will be saved. Correlating, many of the Jews thought that because they were physically uh, circumcised, that they are right with God. But even the Old Testament teaches that that's not true. Jeremiah 9.25, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So they had not placed their faith in the Messiah. They had not placed their faith in the promise of the one who had come. But rather they were trusting in these rites and rituals to make them right with God. And those rites and rituals could not make them right with God. They were simply pointing to Christ and the one that would come. Now, <clears throat> As you discuss the, these issues, there are different things that, that pop up. And one of them is that there are a lot of people that understand a progressive nature of the revelation in Old, of the Old Testament. And there is, in fact, a progressive nature of revelation. The farther you go through the Bible, the more clear things become. There is an unfolding of truth. But it's not an unfolding of truth that brings contradiction. It's not an unfolding of truth that, that has to make right or wrong that is taught earlier in the scriptures. 
And there are many that believe that this idea that circumcision uh, didn't make you right with God is extremely late in Judaism. That that came in the time of Jeremiah, that, that came in the time of the prophets, but that was not understood in, Mo, in, in uh, Abraham's day or was not understood in Moses' day like it was understood in the book of Jeremiah. So I put Leviticus in there uh, just to show you that this is not later Judaism. <laughs> this is from the start, the understanding about circumcision. So Leviticus 26, 40 and following states, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery and they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of the enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, now notice that's not later prophecy, that's not the latter prophets of the scripture, that's back when the law is given. It states that a Jew has to be circumcised of heart. There has to be a belief that's associated Mere ritual cannot make one right with God. And of course, the idea that circumcision alone is not what makes one a part of God's people is repeated in the New Testament. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit and not by the letter. This praise is not from man, but from God. So Christ acted with the intent of making one new entity out of the existing two entities. There was now to be a new community of believers, Ephesians 2.15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So it isn't just that the, he took two and brought them together and combined them into one. He took two and created something very different and better. I think that's important to keep in mind. So when he's talking about creating in himself one new man, again, it's not just bringing Jew and Gentile together with all of their beliefs and practices and everything kind of hodgepodged and, and brought together, but rather he is doing something new. He's doing something unique in Christ. So he took two and created something very different and better. Christ acted not only to reconcile Jew and Gentile to each other, but to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God. So there's something much bigger than just bringing mankind together. It's bringing mankind to God as well. Therefore, the peace that is spoken of is not just with each other, but with God himself. So Romans 5.1, that's not on your sheet. I'll tell you when we're back to our sheet. Romans 5.1 states... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we came to faith, we were at enmity with God. Uh, we saw two weeks ago that one of the benefits of salvation, uh, one of the aspects of passing from death to life is that we're no longer under God's wrath, that we are no longer 
uh, enmity with God. So there is this peace that's been made with God, but the primary emphasis in this passage is actually the peace that's been made with God's people. It is being reconciled to God that reconciles us to each other. Reconciled to each other is a byproduct. It flows out of our reconciliation with God. So number one, we're back to the sheet. Uh, It is in reconciling us to God that God has made us so much better than what we were individually. The hostility was killed through the death and the resurrection of Christ. It was crucified with him. He changed us to such a degree that hostility was done away with. It's a part of the new life that we spoke of two weeks ago, of passing from death into life. This a change of heart and mind and attitude and, and uh, responses. H, thus, the gospel was preached to Jew and Gentile alike, for all needed to be saved. Number one, the gospel that results in peace was preached to the Gentiles. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Now, we're already told in the verses that precede what is meant by that. They were far off. They were strangers from the covenants. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were ignorant of the promises of God. So they were very far away from God. And God preached to them who were far off. Secondly, the gospel that results in peace was preached to the Jewish people as well. Verse 17. And he came and preached, now I jump to the bold, peace to those who were near, referring to the Gentiles. Uh, Excuse me, referring to the Jewish people. They were near. And we could ask the question, well, how were they near? Romans answers that question. In Romans chapter 3, verse 1, it says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? If circumcision can't save you, if circumcision doesn't make you right with God, Paul asks the question in Romans, then what value is it? What benefit is it? What advantage does the Jew have? How are they better than the Gentile if it doesn't save them? Well, the next verse answers the question in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So they were near because they had God's word. They were near because they had the ceremonial cleansings. They had the sacrificial system that pointed to the Messiah and how sins had to be paid for, how there had to be a blood sacrifice. All of these were pointing to a Messiah that they were to put their faith and trust in. But as is clear in the book of Hebrews, the blood of goats and bulls can't take away sin. And I pointed out a number of months ago when we looked at Psalm 51, David said, I would offer a sacrifice, but in that you take no delight. He said, but what you delight is a broken and contrite heart. David knew, and there was a remnant that knew 
that the sacrifices themselves pointed to something greater. In fact, when Moses was on the mount, if you remember, it says that he saw the heavenly tabernacle. He saw what the earthly was to reflect. Galatians says that the gospel was preached beforehand unto Abraham. Abraham understood the promise of the Messiah. David understood the promise of the Messiah. We get to the New Testament. And, of course, we have uh, Simeon who understands the promise of the Messiah. And there were many, but they were a remnant. They were a remnant. But they were near because they had all of these advantages that the Gentiles did not have. They had a tabernacle. They could see a cloudy pillar going before them in the daytime, a fiery pillar at night. They had all these advantages to trust in God, but unfortunately, most did not. So now, we have this, uh, well, uh, I got ahead of myself. I'm at the top of page eight. Uh, I'll get back to the, uh, I shouldn't say top of page eight, because I'm looking at a different thing than you have. Uh, I'm at Isaiah 57, 19. Where is that? Seven. Okay. Page seven. Isaiah 57, 19. Everybody with me? Uh, we, we are looking at this terminology that's found in the Old Testament as well. This is not just a New Testament concept. Isaiah 57, 19. Creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace. To the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. That's a reference to what we're talking about in Ephesians, to those who are near and to those who are far off. And again, in Isaiah 58, it, it piggybacks on that idea. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you do not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. These outward rites and rituals, without a heart that's transformed through faith, is meaningless. Is meaningless. And so those that were far off, who had none of the rituals, had none of the rites, had none of the understanding, they had to hear the gospel, but so did those that were close, who had all these advantages of the rituals and the ceremonies, but yet not placed their faith in Christ. I. It is through Christ that both groups have entrance into the presence of God. Ephesians 2.18, for through him, as through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And I record the allusion to this, this truth that's given to us in the book of Matthew, the events that took place when Jesus Christ was crucified. 
And you remember that when Christ was crucified, we read of this account, Matthew 27, 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So there was a physical, visible manifestation of this spiritual truth that was given even when Christ died on the cross. To show that there is entrance into the presence of God because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil in the temple was rent. That which divided the holy place from the most holy place, that which no one could enter, was now exposed. There was an ability to come into the presence of God because of the work of the Lord Jesus. The results of the union. We belong to the people of God, stated negatively, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Stated positively, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You who once did not belong, now belong. We are established on the teachings of the apostles of the New Testament and the prophets of the Old and New Testament, Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and understand prophets there to be referring to all prophets, Old and, and New Testament, that which they had been proclaiming, this good news. And of course, and I'm going off on a tangent, but in the book of Romans, it refers to those who are not my people shall be called my people, etc., etc. So we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. However, it is Jesus himself that is central to the gospel and the word of God, Ephesians 2.20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He is the most significant figure. And we could understand that in a number of ways. Uh, because you can't exhaust the importance of who Christ is in this whole process. But as we talk about being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, of course, Jesus is the one who speaks for God the way no other one spoke for God. Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times in, uh, God who at sundry times in the past spoken unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So Christ is this cornerstone, not only through his teaching, but through his actions, that through his shed blood, now a new temple is being built, of which he is the cornerstone. And uh, let me just finish with Acts chapter 4, verse 12, under the bold there, where it says, this is Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which had become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, which by you must be saved. You see, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Uh, you have to be saved through Jesus Christ. He is that cornerstone. D, there is now a spiritual temple in which God dwells, Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole structure... That's referring to Jew and Gentile, 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So you, you see how we're using these metaphors where the physical temple is teaching us something more significant about the spiritual temple. And it says that now God is at work building a spiritual temple. 1 Peter 2, 1 and following alludes to this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good and you come to him a living stone, that's referring to Christ, he's this living stone, rejected by men, that is those who do not believe in him or trust in him, uh, and uh, used primarily of the Jewish people, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We talked about how we were saved to perform good works which God before had ordained for us. That was Ephesians 2.10. So now here we are able to offer up ourselves, able to offer up our works, able to offer up our dedication to God, for it is sanctified through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we have in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which King James says, which is your reasonable service. Uh, ESV says, which is your spiritual act of worship. Uh, I actually think that's a better translation, your spiritual act of worship. This is what worship really consists of. It's presenting ourselves to God, to be used by God. That's the recognition of his worthiness, that we are giving ourselves to him. Going on with 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So now we have a different picture. You picture a building, you picture a construction site, you picture a cornerstone there that is building up a, 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 a magnificent edifice which is going to be a spiritual temple. And there are people that are walking and instead of building on that, that cornerstone, they're stumbling over it. <laughs> they're tripping over it. They're not building on it and they're saying all oh, this dumb stone's in the way and they're rejecting it. No, there is no foundation which can be laid other than the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians. So, E, here, the emphasis that the believers are combining to form one new spiritual temple, 221, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So think of yourself as a building block. We are being united, brought together as a people of God in order to build a holy temple, a place of worship, a place of service, a place of glorifying 
God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And it goes on to say, But you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Ephesians 2.22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the conclusion, A. There will be a great unity in the presence of God. People of all backgrounds will come together. It's a very familiar verse, you know it. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. All people are going to come together to worship. We are going to be one in the truest sense of that word. There's not going to be a, a separate service for the Hispanics and a separate service for the, for the Asians and a separate service for the Greeks. And there isn't going to be a, a morning service for the teens and a later service for the adults. There is one people worshiping one God. They are united together in the presence of God. Revelation 7.10, And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that is salvation in the fullest sense of the word. Going back to two weeks ago, I said that so often we talk about salvation in a very truncated manner. And we limit salvation to being delivered from the wrath of God. We talk about being delivered from hell. That is a part of what salvation is. But salvation is deliverance from all that death entails. If you remember, we looked at and unpacked what death is, and we said we've been transformed from death into life, which is what salvation is. Salvation is life. This is life eternal, that they may not, that they might know the the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so, being united in Christ, it transforms us as a people of God. See, it is hard to bring people together. It is easy to give lip service to, but very difficult to maintain. A unity that is founded solely upon the work of Christ for us. How can we obtain and maintain that unity. Well, stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. There's more to come. The foundation, the doctrine, is given in chapters 1, 2, 3, and the application is given in 4, 5, and 6. So it's going to be talking about husbands and wives. It's going to be talking about uh, children and parents, parents and children. It's going to be talking about slaves and masters, masters and slaves. It's talking about every kind of relationship is affected by this truth The main thought I'd like you to go away with tonight is this. Salvation is not just individualistic. Just like we truncate salvation to talk about it's being saved from wrath, when it's much more than that. We have really truncated our understanding of the gospel 
when we limit it to the individual work of Christ in each one of our hearts individually. We have a term that we talk about accepting Jesus Christ as your personal savior. There's nothing wrong with that terminology. But you need to understand that God saved you with the purpose of bringing you into a family, into a body, into a group of believers. He wasn't just saving you, and he wasn't just saving me. He was saving us. He was saving us. And so as a people, we now belong to his family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We now belong. We are of one household, it said, Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, with the members of the household of God. And so people say some absurd things. For example, if I'm a Christian, do I need to go to church? Of course. Of course. God saved you to be a part of a body, to be a part of believers. You can't fill all the one another passages of Scripture by yourself. You have to be with God's people. God intends to affect this world through our united effort. There are so many images in the Scripture to talk about the incompleteness of Christians that are rogue, that are just going their own way. The whole idea of spiritual gifts. Can the eye say it has no need of the ear? Can the ear say, I have no need of the hand? You need each other. You need to be grounding together, building together a holy temple of God. It's our united worship together that brings this honor and glory to God. God is at work in his church. And we're going to find in Ephesians, the emphasis is time and time again, in the church, in the church, in the church. It isn't just you and me individually. It's the church. God is bringing people together to unite in him, to break down all the barriers that existed because of the fall, because of the sin that's existed in our lives. God wants to heal all those broken relationships. He came to unite a people in their worship of him. Then we'll get into the practical things of, you know, lying to one another and and being bitter towards each other and having to forgive one another, etc. All that's the application of the foundation that's here. God saved us to make us one people. We're united to each other because we're united to him. And whether we ever achieve that in this life, there's no question in the life to come, we are one people enjoying our fellowship with God and with each other for all 
eternity future. There'll be no more lying. There'll be no more cheating. There'll be no more stealing. We will do not harm to one another. We will love one another in the truest sense of that word. And so we have this privilege to work on unity now to the honor and glory of God. There will be nothing that puts on display the power of the gospel like bringing warring people together. Families that are healed, divorces that are healed. Jesus said, how will people know that you are my disciples? If you have love one to another. The world is so desirous of trying to reconcile the races, reconciling the nations. There's war, there's hatred. Black and white, Hispanic. How are we going to bring people together? How are we going to unite? How are we going to be one people going forward? It will never happen apart from the gospel. And with the gospel, it must happen. It's not an option for us. And nothing displays the power of God like the oneness of people that have nothing else in common other than their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ.